this special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast, we're releasing the 10 presentations from our inaugural conference held on the 18th of November 2021. The conference theme was Menzies Early Years, Success, Failure, Resilience. In this episode, you'll hear from Sydney Institute Deputy Director Anne Henderson, who presented on Preparation for War, the Trade Union Movement and Appeasement, followed by the Australian National University's Professor Frank Bongiorno, who presented on Curtin and Menzies. Let me start with a challenge. As you all know, Robert Menzies is often accused by his opponents, both academic and political, of having been soft on Nazi Germany in the late 1930s. The criticism is that he was a leading appeaser. So I ask you to consider the following words spoken in May 1939 in the Australian House of Representatives, and you tell me if they belong to an appeaser or not, and then think if you might guess who would have said them. On the 9th of May 1939, the House of Representatives, the new Menzies government set aside a day to debate the growing tension in international affairs and what might be Australia's response to the expansionist aims of Germany. Among the many who feared the coming war in the aftermath of the futile Munich Agreement over Czechoslovakia, one leading MP got to his feet and argued this. The efforts of the British government in its negotiations for peace were to some extent made difficult by the partisan activities of those who are more concerned, as it were, with fighting Hitler than with establishing peace. There is unquestionably in the world a class that has a vested interest in war and war-making. And the propagandistic activities which are employed in the interests of this exploiting and ruthless class, which is international in character, have made difficulties for all governments, including, I believe, the governments of dictators. These are the words of a pacifist, a man who believed that war, if it came, would be the work of international profiteers and not the result of the expansionist ambitions of Germany's arch-dictator Adolf Hitler. In other words, diplomacy, also known derisively as appeasement, was needed and diplomacy should push on regardless of the failure of the Munich Agreement of late 1938 in an effort to avoid war. So who spoke those words? Surprisingly, it was then Labor leader, none other than John Curtin. Any honest look back at 1939, whether it be London or Australia, must accept that in the minds of all but a few dissidents in government at the time, think Winston Churchill, Billy Hughes, the overriding pressure was to avoid war. Appeasement, it was called. Such sentiment and its tendency to evaluate Germany's Nazi leader in similar terms to other known dictators could not envisage the horrific reality that would be the Third Reich's 1940s. And so a policy of appeasement carried the day. This was so even after Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia in March 1939 that tore up the Munich Agreement. However, as Poland began to fall to the Nazis in late August 1939, it was Robert Menzies who decided Australia would join Britain in declaring war against Germany. And it was Robert Menzies who committed Australian forces to that European war. Not until well into 1940 would Labor leader, or would Labor under Curtin, support Australia's commitment to send troops to fight Hitler. Likewise, Curtin Labor in the 1930s had opposed every piece of legislation designed to increase Australia's defence spending or armed forces. This during the governments led by Joseph Lyons and after April 1939 by Rock Menzies. 
Robert Menzies is the newly sworn-in Prime Minister of Australia in May 1939, following the sudden death of his predecessor, Joseph Lyons, was aged 44. Politically and professionally, he had been shaped by the years that followed the outbreak of World War I. That global cataclysm would leave a long shadow and for Menzies indelibly forge his allegiances and sharpen his opposition to ideologies that promoted state control. His belief in the Westminster system under the Crown as the strongest bulwark against dictatorship was underpinned by his continued fascination with constitutional law. World War I changed the world in unforeseen ways. The death toll was some 20 million with a similar number of casualties. It would claim the lives of 60,000 Australian men. It altered global boundaries, ended empires, spawned revolution and the rise of of the radical reformist ideologies of communism and fascism. It handed the government of Russia to a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship and soon saw an internationally focused communist push under Moscow's common turn to overturn Western democracies as agents of capitalism. It equally spawned the rise of right-wing and fascist opponents of the communists, forces that in time took power in Italy and Spain. The defeat and humiliation of Germany in turn gave way to a revived German nationalism, soon to be hijacked by Hitler's National Socialists. Robert Menzies' parents insisted he should not join his two older brothers and enlist in the First World War. His father was not well, his two brothers were as much as the family was prepared to sacrifice. And since Menzies did not reveal the reasons for not enlisting in the 1920s and 1930s, Menzies' political opponents would contend that he had shirked his duty. Menzies, in time, Menzies would also argue he was drawn into politics, as you've told us, Troy, as an alternative way of serving his country. The First World War then would cast a personal shadow over Robert Menzies. Having embarked on a stellar legal career in his 20s, it is not closely recorded how Robert Menzies became interested in public affairs, sufficient to stand for Parliament. Menzies' biographer, Alan Martin, explains how in the 1920s, the non-Labour side of politics was inspired by the sacrifice of the First World War and Australia's allegiance to Britain and the Empire. The stirring of national feeling among the middle classes saw a burgeoning of public-spirited groups, some with sentiment that was narrow, even sectarian, but others genuinely interested in stirring debate as to how to legislate for a better society. The growth of these loyalist groups also came in reaction to the increasingly strident calls from leftist labour groups. The Australian Communist Party had invaded Australia's labour movement and was standing candidates at elections with policies urging the overthrow of the Westminster-style government. It was through friends and colleagues in the Constitutional Club, in particular Wilfred Kent Hughes, that Robert Menzies entered Victoria's Legislative Council in October 1928 as a nationalist and in 1929 won the seat of Wadding for the Victorian Legislative Assembly. He was a rising star in a party desperate for rejuvenation after years of Victorian Labor working with the Victorian Country Party in government. While the older Menzies would write that law was his great love and politics his duty, the role Menzies came to play in the formation of the United Australia Party, the UAP, in 1931, and the formation of the Liberal Party of Australia in the mid-1940s, suggests that Menzies was addicted to political activity. He was a natural leader, His father and grandfathers had been politically involved and he had inherited their thirst for political action, whatever he might say about love for the law. 
The philosophy that underpinned Menzies' political endeavours was a sort of British liberalism in the style of Edmund Burke or John Stuart Mill, the protection of individual and citizen rights and responsibilities under the Westminster system and the Crown. With the young nationalists, Menzies joined discussion groups and speeches on street corners that pushed for balanced budgets, law and order, financial security for small and large businesses, loyalty to the empire and unity for the fragmented non-labour side of politics. At a conference in 1933, Kent Hughes led discussions advocating the corporate state and this proposal, his proposal could easily be interpreted as an anglicised version of fascist state theory. Sydney Telegraph reporter Brian Penton, who was at the conference, reported that Robert Menzies, then Victorian Attorney-General, attended the meeting and squashed Kent Hughes' manifestos as nonsense. Dictatorship of the state, whether benevolent or otherwise, was not Menzies' way. Robert Menzies entered the federal parliament at the September 1934 federal election and soon became a key figure in the Lions government as Attorney-General. After years of political activism in the cause of representative democracy, two incidents would soon test Menzies' skills in dealing with the direct action of the Communist Party of Australia, the CPA, and the unions it inspired and the wider peace movement that disguised its activities. The furor over the entry into Australia of German writer Egon Kisch would leave Menzies smarting from Communist Party tactics that turned a known communist activist visiting Australia into a martyr. Invited as a guest speaker at the August 1934 All-Australian Congress Against War and Fascism, organised to counter Victoria's centenary celebrations, the active and known communist Kitsch, with many local supporters, resisted government attempts to prevent his coming ashore. It was believed Kish would connect with a network of communist act activist groups and spread subversive propaganda. The saga continued from port to port until in Melbourne on the 13th of November, Kish jumped from the ship, breaking his leg on the quay. Helped by a decision in the High Court from Justice H.V. Everett in Kish's favour, Menzies and the Lions government could not stop Kish from staying. Kish finally left Australia in March 1935 after meeting widely with supporters and with enough adventures to write a book titled Australian Landfall. He never attended the conference he'd been invited to. Now, while the Kish encounter was an embarrassing episode for the Lions government, Menzies in particular, it did offer experience of the way politics would be increasingly played. As Menzies and Lyons met with leaders in Britain and Europe from between 1935 and 1938 and discussed the gradually weakening situation against dictator powers in Europe, chief, chiefly they were dictators of a fascist kind, the Moscow communist-backed so-called international anti-fascist peace movements increased their hold on intellectuals and unionists. For the Lyons government, any tilt against such communist-supported pro-peace anti-fascist groups risked being seen to support fascist governments. It is an indictment of Australian historians that for decades, Egon Kish was never properly tagged as a common turn or communist activist, but merely described as an anti-fascist. Industrial action by unionists over pay conditions or workers' rights was familiar enough in 1938. Strikes for political action were not. So it was that in late November 1938, Menzies became embroiled in the government's handling of an industrial dispute at Port Kembla when waterside workers refused to load the steamer <coughs> Delfram with pig iron bound for Japan in order to oppose the action of, quote, Japanese fascist militarists in China, as Union Secretary Tom Roach put it. Clearly, Australian unions had become radicalised sufficient to hold national government to account over matters unrelated to the condition of workers. 
Secretary of the Waterside Workers' Federation and Communist Party activist Tom Roach argued that the denial of the Belfram's load of pig iron would somehow prevent fascist prevent, sorry, prevent fascist Japan, then in a bloody war with China, from, quote, further attacks on peaceful people, which include Australia. The standoff overloading pig iron bound for Japan <clears throat> with echoes at ports around Australia caused divisions among union organisers with local leaders defying federal officials and with disputes over tactics. Workers in time were stood down with BHP putting off 5,000 jobs at Port Kembla. Collections were made to pay workers strike relief over Christmas. Labor and its unions would tag Menzies with the nickname Pig Iron Bob. The Dolphin dispute and its repercussions came to an end after some 10 weeks with the government invoking the Bruce government's 1929 Transport Workers Act. It was nicknamed the Dog Collar Act because it could facilitate recruitment of strikebreaker workers. Eventually, the pig iron was loaded into the Delfram under protest, while the government agreed to negotiate with unions about future exports of pig iron to Japan. Menzies, who had taken the brunt of the outcry against government supporting fascist Japan, were supported in the age of saying that if Curtin and Labor had been in government, they would have adopted the same attitude. The Delfram dispute would become a preview of the waterfront in the first years of the war. On the 23rd of August 1939, Hitler and Stalin agreed to the German-Soviet non-aggression pact, which left Hitler unopposed to conquer Poland. After Australia declared war, unrest, strikes and sabotage of, Men of the Menzies government's war effort became commonplace on the wars, as radical and communist-controlled unions sought to disrupt the administration of what they termed the capitalist enemy. In June 1940, Menzies' government declared the CPA as an illegal organisation, along with miscellaneous fascist groups. In a radio broadcast in July 1943, Menzies would look back saying, when this war broke out in September 1939, the Australian communists were opposed to it and did their best to organise strikes in industry, did their best to impede war production, argued strongly for a negotiated peace, used all their poisonous old claptrap about this being, quote, an imperialist war, like they said the war of 1914-18 was. From the late 1930s, the world had inched forward with uncertainty. Appeasers dominated politics on all sides. In Whitehall, there were hopes that Hitler would find his, quote, red line somewhere in continental Europe and spare Britain, as UK Foreign Minister Alex Cadogan put it in his diaries. Robert Menzies visited Berlin in July 1938. He reported positives and negatives in what he found and hoped for. He wrote to Lord Halifax on his return that he wished the English press would not, quote, talk nonsense about firm stands and successful threats at Berlin. On the 9th of May 1939, well after Germany's invasion of Czechoslovakia, Labour leader John Curtin argued that Nazism was okay for Germans and in the House of Representatives, opined that the Nazi system of government was a matter for Germans and not something Australia or the British Empire were justified in opposing. Labour's Morris Blackburn argued in the same debate that the only sure way is for people of the British races to negotiate with the German people today to show a willingness to meet them on such terms that everybody will be able to live in security. There is no great difference between Mr Chamberlain and her Hitler. When Menzies finally declared war on the 3rd of September 1939, he spoke of it as his melancholy duty. 
As late as 11th of September 1939, Menzies would write to Australia's High Commissioner Bruce in London, recording what he called his rambling and personal thoughts, in which he predicted Hitler might stop at any expansion beyond Poland. As for many, it was to be no more than a desperate hope. Thank you. You will now hear from the Australian National University's Professor Frank Bongiorno, who presented on Curtin and Menzies. There's a brief note uh, in the Menzies papers in the National Library, handwritten by Curtin and addressed to Dear Bob. Um, It's to to Menzies. By this time, of course, a backbencher, dated the 7th of November 1941. Um, Curtin told him that in a cable he'd received from Churchill, uh, the British Prime Minister had concluded his observations with the message, give my regards to Mr Menzies, I am so glad he is on your war council. I thought you would like to know that, Curtin added. The voluminous writings um, on Robert Menzies and John Curtin are in fact agreed on one thing, um, and that is that they had um, a a cordial and courteous relationship. Um, It would be a trivial point, um, except that, you know, the declining civility of our own political discourse um, should alert us that such matters are not to be treated lightly or taken for granted. Um, It's not, however, necessarily the most important factor to consider in their relations. Party politics of the 1940s, more than our own, depended on wider movements and forces. Curtin was de facto leader of a, a complex and fractious movement, not merely of a few dozen members of parliament who assembled from time to time in the sheep paddocks of Canberra. Um, Menzies, too, uh, led a party that had come into being in part through actions undertaken by powerful business and media interests, but also um, the mobilisation of a large constituency of dissatisfied uh, uh, citizens in the early 1930s, you know, coming out of the Depression. And the same was true, I think, of the Country Party in the 1920s and 30s. So any consideration of these two leaders, the positions they took, uh, the relationship between them, needs to keep that wider context in view. Now, by leaving aside uh, such complexity, it would be easy and perhaps too easy um, to present Menzies and Curtin as contrasting representatives of two traditions in Australian politics, I don't know, liberal and socialist perhaps, or middle class and the working class. How is this going to work? Oh, look at that. Whoops. Oh, no, I've gone too far now. Here we go. Oh, Good. Um, Okay, Uh, now, it's true they occupy very different places in our collective memory. Uh, Interestingly, in each case, that collective memory has a foundation document, I'd argue. Um, For Menzies, it's the radio broadcast we've already heard about, delivered in May 1942, The Forgotten People. And for Curtin, it's an article written for the Melbourne Afternoon newspaper, The Herald, published on 27th of December 1941, under the title The Task Ahead, now, of course, usually recalled as Curtin's appeal to America. Now, moments such as these and their legacy in ink and memory, um, I guess in digitised form these days in PowerPoint, um, they give rise to myths and legends. Menzies' broadcast has come to be understood as prefiguring uh, the political appeal that would eventually bring him to power and sustain him in office. Um, But the Forgotten People was not a major event 
in its time. Um, there's no evidence of the phrase itself resonating widely. I mean, the Age's brief report on the broadcast didn't even use the, uh, the, the phrase forgotten people even once. Um, it framed the talk as a defence of the middle class. Uh, other uh, commentary referred to a forgotten group. I don't think that was ever going to take off, was it? The forgotten group. Um, the broadcast has acquired its significance through sub uh, subsequent mythologising and indeed historicising by people like Judith um, and uh, David and others. Um, Curtin's article made a bigger splash, uh, but it was a messy splash at the time. It attracted a chorus of critics at home and abroad, uh, neither Winston Churchill nor the leader of the nation being appealed to, FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, sent Curtin fan mail. Um, but Curtin's article has also been mythologised as a turn to the United States, even when we have abundant evidence that Curtin spent much of the remainder of his life seeking to strengthen Australia's relationship with Britain, to which one could add, of course, that, as, as Peter Edwards has shown, um, uh, Menzies quietly appealed to the United States on numerous occasions uh, while he was Prime Minister um, uh, on behalf of Australia and, and indeed, British Empire. Here is another way, I think, in which we need to see these two men, each a product of late colonial small-town Victoria, as having overlapping rather than distinct histories. And it's been interesting, actually, to hear a number of the papers making much, and I think quite correctly, of the way in which we need to relate them to those, you know, sort of provincial Victorian roots um, of, of the lives of each of them. And interestingly, uh, with that, that area around Ballarat being uh, very important to both. Both men are today well regarded as prime ministers. We seem to have become ever more attached to lists and rankings over the last few decades. Um, and uh, that habit has extended to, to political scientists and historians, uh, you know, ask for who they think was, you know, the best prime minister and so on. The most recent of these surveys uh, in 2020, um, undertaken by Monash University scholars, um, has, uh, and I'll move along there, um, here we go, uh, so it, it, it um, has John Curtin coming in first, followed by Hawke, Deacon, Chifley and Menzies, the same result as the survey turned up a decade earlier. Now, this kind of exercise is obviously heavily laden with the values of those being surveyed, um, however expert they might be. Uh, Menzies and Curtin were both wartime prime ministers, which one might argue allows for comparison, yet they each faced a very distinctive situation. Menzies' leadership ending before Pearl Harbour, uh, Curtin's coinciding with the period of the war in the Pacific. They each faced um, you know, very different challenges as well as very different opportunities, as uh, Anne's paper has just emphasised. And how does one compare a short wartime prime, minister search, uh, prime ministership such as Curtin's with a long one such as Menzies, undertaken mainly in the era of peace, while, of course, haunted by the prospect of another war, particularly in the early 1950s, and I suppose, again, you could say at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nonetheless, few would doubt that each of these leaders uh, would be considered in the front rank of Australian Prime Ministers. Even the harshest of Curtin's critics among the historians in recent years, the late John Hurst, conceded that his critique of Curtin's leadership, which he founded partly on the claim that Curtin lacked physical courage, uh, would not lead to his downgrading him very far in the ranking of Prime Ministers. He doubted his greatness 
but not that he deserved admiration for what he was able to achieve in difficult circumstances, including the circumstances imposed by his own limitations. Similarly, um, Menzies' detractors would surely also concede um, something more than, the, than that he had great political skills. Um, the post-war nation-building achievements look better every year as we contemplate the policy failures uh, of our own century and the absence of compelling vision. And as, his, as historians have shown from as long ago as the publication of the first volume of Paul Hasluck's official war history, which is the early 1950s, there's also a case to be made for the achievements of Menzies' brief wartime prime, minister, uh, prime ministership as well. Now, we, we know more of Menzies' estimation of Curtin than the other way round. Um, Menzies uh, wrote of Curtin in his 1967 memoir, Afternoon Light, some memories of Mendevin. I agree with David. I think it, it, held, it holds up rather well rereading it for the first time uh, in many, many years, actually, just recently. Um, overall, it's a generous assessment of Curtin, although it's notable that among the principal virtues that Menzies found in Curtin was his willingness to put aside socialism during the war. Uh, in contrast with Chifley, uh, who helped destroy his government with his efforts to nationalise airlines and banks, I'm um, paraphrasing uh, Menzies here, Curtin was, and I quote, confronted by a practical and difficult world. And he responded by having, again, quote, grafted a pragmatic approach onto the historic dogmas of his party and so make a fine place in Australian history. Now, I think in, in our efforts to narrate and interpret the lives of others, we, we tend to reveal a fair bit of ourselves. Is this not also a fair description of Menzies' own post-war rule, you know, that pragmatic conservative dimension of working within the Australian settlement, for instance, that was mentioned earlier today? Uh, according to Menzies' testimony, in the years um, they faced one another across the chamber, the two men met and spoke regularly, and Curtin, with his philosophical mind, loved nothing more than a personal discussion which had no particular relationship to the business before the house. In that forum as else, and elsewhere, Menzies thought Curtin a good and effective speaker, not perhaps a great one. But he admired Curtin's parliamentary speech-making enough to tell him he thought it a pity that Curtin tended to read uh, typed statements in the House as often as he did, rather than speaking uh, more off the cuff. Um, the shrewd reply of Curtin, the former journalist, was that the press didn't report anymore. If you gave journalists the text, it had a fair chance of getting into the newspapers. Otherwise, it's just a gamble as to what you'll find that you said. Um, reading between the lines, I think that Menzies was to some extent taken in by Curtin. Um, Menzies was certainly on to Chifley's methods. He accuses him in his memoir with some justice, I think, of a sort of naive vanity that he hoped to be underestimated with advantage, that Chifley hoped to be underestimated with advantage. It was Curtin not also playing a game of this kind, one that he too played to his advantage. I hesitate to make too much of modern comparisons, um, but I'd suggest that the Prime Ministership fell to John Curtin in 1941 in a manner that, at least in one respect, bears some comparison with how it fell to Scott Morrison in 2018. The precious parcel ended up in the hands of Curtin, of Morrison, but mysteriously neither appeared to have had anything much to do with putting it there. 
John Edwards challenges the interpretation of Curtin as the reluctant leader as part of the, the myth of St Jack. And Curtin, I think, played this to his advantage, just as the mythmakers, of course, have subsequently made much of Curtin, you know, having office, office thrust upon him, you know, the reluctant leader. It's been to the advantage of his reputation. It beggars belief, um, really, in some ways, that a man of Menzies' intelligence, for instance, could really believe what he told Stanley Melbourne Bruce that Curtin had told him, um, Men uh, Menzies, that is. So Curtin had told Menzies that Curtin's own greatest ambition is to remain leader of the opposition for the duration of the war, um, you know, which I find... Uh, a very unlikely thing indeed. Um, yet there's no indication from the, the context of that letter that Menzies did in fact practice the scepticism that you might uh, imagine. Um, and the fact that he reinforced the idea decades later in his memoirs suggests that he seems to have somehow convinced himself that Curtin didn't really want office. Um, you know, old man, Curtin is supposed to have said, I was quite happy about you as Prime Minister, so were my fellows. Had you continued as you were going, we would have we would have taken no steps to defeat you. But when your own people rejected you, my people decided to attack and nothing could hold them. Uh, to which one might reply, you know, Malcolm, if only those Dutton people had behaved themselves, you know. Um, Curtin belonged to a movement that had always been suspicious of strong thrusting, charismatic leadership, um, hostile to those who tried placing themselves too far above their fellows. This is a part of the culture of the Labor movement. Uh, Menzies had the very exemplar of that point in his own ranks, in Billy Hughes. There he was, sitting in Cabinet. In the same September 1939 letter to Bruce, in which he reported Curtin's supposed lack of ambition, in fact, it's the same letter that Anne just quoted from uh, in relation to another matter, um, Menzies said of the wily old Hughes, Billy is the senior minister and quite frankly, he is impossible. He has become a pathetic and futile figure in the House and in Cabinet, although he can be vastly diverting and cleverly destructive, he has no positive contribution to make on anything. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but he was also, of course, Hughes, uh, along with the equally destructive Jack Lang, the central figure in the history of the modern Labor Party. Um, so no one did more than Hughes through his negative example to reinforce Labor's hostility to charismatic leadership of a kind that set itself above the collective will of the party. Can Menzies have missed how Curtin's whole mission as leader, and it will continue through the war years, in his handling of, of, of matters like conscription for overseas service, um, it was all an effort to avoid the destruction that Hughes had wrought. Curtin's style had some of the features of what the late political psychologist Graham Little would call inspiring leadership, but it was always tempered by very large doses um, of what Little calls group leadership. Um, the most common variety, in fact, found in Labor's ranks. Um, Judy, Judith Brett, um, helpfully defines the style of leadership for us. I quote from her, people are seen as belonging together, she says, and the emphasis is on the emotions and experiences that bind on trust, loyalty, self-effacement, tradition. Billy Hughes never sought self-effacement, but Curtin did, even if it was an act, performative, um, in the way that Menzies suspected Chifley was doing, um, but which for some reason, 
um, Menzies didn't seem to recognise quite so well in Curtin, perhaps because he liked him, perhaps because he, he was, uh, it was a generous reading of Curtin's character. These considerations are also relevant in the matter of forming a national or all-party government. As is well known, Menzies had sought to draw Labor into such an arrangement even before the 1940 election, the one that destroyed Menzies' majority. After that election, he redoubled his efforts but could only succeed in getting Curtin and Labor to agree to join an advisory war council. And there were further attempts after Menzies returned from London in May 1941 for the same thing. When uh, his leadership was on the ropes uh, in August. He offered to stand aside and serve in a government led by Curtin. Um, Curtin again uh, refused him, and Menzies' response, as we know, was to resign as Prime Minister in favour of Arthur Fadden, a non-solution that announced the coalition could really no longer govern. Now, Menzies seems to have imagined, even in his memoirs, that Curtin was open to persuasion. Again, I believe he overlooked the overwhelming influence in these matters of Curtin's style, his collegiality in relation to his own party and his polite formality in relation to political opponents such as Menzies. Whenever a proposal came to him, Curtin would take it to his party, which would duly reject it on each occasion in line with formal party policy toward coalitions. This was Curtin's style, as already explained, his conformity with a model of group leadership. There was, however, one very prominent enthusiast for national government. And there we go, I'm the right thing. Uh, a very prominent uh, enthusiast for national uh, government or all party government in the party. And that, of course, was Herbert Veer Evert, who'd come into the parliament at the 1940 election after resigning from the High Court bench. The fingerprints of Everts' plotting would not have been missed by Curtin, um, but Curtin, unlike Everts, or I'd suggest Menzies, understood that the entry of the Labor Party into a national government would almost certainly have produced a major split. The situation in New South Wales was especially delicate. Lang remained an influence there, and the Langite Beasley group in the federal parliament had split off again ahead of the 1940 election after the carriage of a motion at state conference calling for hands-off Russia in line with communist but not Labor policy. And it reflected, in fact, the influence of communism and, and communist ideas within the New South Wales Labor Party. Evert had not come to the Labor leadership, pardon, Evert had not come to the Labor leadership and kept it because he had, had the instincts of a Sunday school teacher. Rather, he had a shrewd appreciation of the play of power, faction, ideology and personality in that most turbulent thing, the interwar labour movement in Australia. Even within caucus itself, he had turbulent personalities, to put it mildly, and even more so after the 1940 election, which brought Arthur Corwell and Bert Everett in to join the likes of Eddie Ward, that bloody rat bag, as Curtin described him to journalists, and stabber Jack Beasley uh, once his group had rejoined the party in 1941. The idea of a national government would continue to bubble along even after Curtin became Prime Minister. In his memoirs, Menzies refers to some developments before the 1943 election involving the ambitions of an unnamed senior member of the government. Um, even in the 1960s, uh, Menzies refrained from mentioning the individual. The proposal was that the minister concerned would cross the floor with his followers and vote out the Curtin government. 
Uh, the minister concerned clearly thought he could do a Hughes or a Lyons. Um, Menzies, on being informed of the idea, said that if it happened, he would vote for Curtin. And assuming that at least some others followed him, the whole plot would fail. It wouldn't have the numbers on the floor of the House. The whole idea seems completely absurd. We now know that there's nothing absurd about it, that due to, uh, we know uh, from John Murphy's biography, that the man in question was Evatt and that he was certainly flirting with some such notion ahead of the 1943 election. When Menzies told Kurt the story, the latter replied he was not tremendously surprised. Uh, what a party Curtin led. This is 1943 with an election coming up. Even allowing for the undoubted loyalty and talent of several key ministers, could anyone else but Curtin have really held such a collection of material together? His whole approach to party leadership was haunted by 1916 and 1931 by Hughes and by Lyons. Now, Curtin would prove an effective leader of a nation at war. He built intelligently on foundations laid by the Menzies government of 1939 to 41, uh, and his government expanded the welfare state, although it didn't initiate it. I mean, the economic historians tell us now that the November 1939 budget of, of uh, it was Percy Spender was probably, you know, the first Keynesian budget in Australia. Um, he was acting treasurer. Uh, and and uh, Curtin's government expanded the welfare state. Um, uh, it committed to, to full employment uh, um, and, and so on. Uh, it, it extended government control over fiscal and monetary policy. But Curtin was in the end a politician, a good one, and he necessarily exploited the idea that his predecessors had left the country inadequately defended, even while reaping the benefits of their far from inconsiderable efforts. He might have regarded Eddie Ward as a ratbag, but Curtin saw political advantage of the myth of the Brisbane line, the story that conservatives intended leaving much of the country to the Japanese. And Ward was allowed his frolic, which, which did Labor no harm at the 1943 election. So Menzies would return the compliment, of course, in December 1949. Um, Australia's prosperity in the Menzies era rested in part on the radical, um, or sorry, rapid, I should say, industrialisation and mobilisation of the war years, and especially the war against Japan. Um, but it also relied on the policies of post-war reconstruction that probably only a Labor government could have delivered in quite the way it did. Menzies, in fact, admitted as much in relation to the immigration scheme uh, in his memoirs. The order that emerged in the 1950s and early 1960s still owed something to the dynamic of Menzies' wartime relationship with Curtin and the legacies of Labor's post-depression economic and social vision. Thank you. We hope you've been enjoying our special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast where you're hearing presentations made at our recent conference in Melbourne on Menzies' early years, success, failure, resilience. Today's episode featured Sydney Institute Deputy Director Anne Henderson, who presented on preparation for war, the trade union movement and appeasement, followed by the Australian National University's Professor Frank Bongiorno, whose presentation was on Curtin and Menzies. Next week is our final episode of this summer series and you will hear from public policy consultant Dr Scott Presser who presented on The Learning Leader followed by Menzies Research Centre Executive Director Nick Cater who presented on Forgotten People to Quiet Australians. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to you joining us on the Afternoon Light podcast next week.